find ourselves this morning picking up our study of Romans in the middle of chapter 2. And that is significant because it happens just eight days after a 19-year-old member of an Orthodox Presbyterian church went into a Jewish synagogue in Poway, California with a semi-automatic rifle and open fire, killing one of the Jewish worshipers there, injuring three others. And only by the grace of God is rifle jammed and the carnage was not worse. In a seven-page manifesto that the shooter posted online, he went into great detail about his conviction of the superiority of the white European race and the inferiority and wickedness of other races, particularly the inferiority of those who are Jewish. He cited verses from the Bible, verses that the Bible speak about the sins of Jewish people, justifying his own superior attitude because he's white. This ideology is known as kinism. It's been around for a few decades. It's propagated by those who take God's word and twist it in order to justify their perverted understanding of race and their own supposed superiority as white people over other races. The shooter in California laced his manifesto with different verses of scripture. Verses like this one, Matthew 27 verse 25, where Jewish people screamed for Pilate to crucify Jesus saying, His blood be on us and our children which in the perverted mind of that murderer means, okay, you killed Jesus, so yes, his blood ought to be upon you and upon your children. He quoted this verse, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, where Paul writes about the Jews, who Paul says, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out, And they displease God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. So the the murderer last week used these verses and others like them to justify his own perverted understanding of how the world works. And how he is a member of a superior race would be justified in taking the lives of Jewish people. Sadly, this way of thinking has been present for 2,000 years of Christian history. There have been those who have not feared God enough to keep them from twisting His Word in order to lift verses out of it to justify their anti-Semitic attitudes in hatred of Jewish people. And of course, the Bible does talk about the sins of Jewish people, as we're going to see today. But it also talks about the sins of other people, all people, everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, have fallen short of the glory of God, have violated God's commandments, and are in need of God's grace. In previous studies of the book of Romans, we have seen how Paul begins early to make the case for the universality of sin. 
He announces the theme of the letter in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1. And then immediately in chapter 1 verse 18, he launches into this description of God's wrath against sin. And from chapter 1 verse 18 all the way down to chapter 3 verse 20, he's building a case. He's making an argument that the whole world has sinned. The whole world is under the wrath of God because all people have sinned. From 118 to the end of the chapter, verse 32, Paul elaborates how the Gentile world has sinned. Those who have not had the blessings of Judaism. And having made that case, he shifts his focus now in chapter 2 to begin to explain how Jews also are under God's wrath because of their sin. And though they are not Gentiles, and though they have enjoyed many blessings as God's chosen people, nevertheless, they have broken His commandments as well. Paul is concerned that both Jew and Gentile understand that they stand on equal ground in need of God's grace. The Gentiles did not have the prophets They did not have the law of God given to them. But they did live in God's world. And so, living in God's world, they had God's creation as we do today. Every day announcing the reality of God. Every day calling us to account for the the fact that we are living in God's world, breathing God's air, enjoying the blessings of life that come from God All the while, recognizing, we should recognize, that the day is coming when we'll have to stand and give an account to Him. So even unreligious people, though they've not had access to the Bible, not had the opportunities that others have had, they too will be held to an account by God because they are created by Him, created for Him, and one day will stand in judgment to give an account for their lives to him. Well, having made that point in chapter 1, Paul in chapter 2 begins to focus more specifically on the Jews. As a Jewish man himself, he wants to make sure that no one thinks that just because he or she is religious, that they will somehow escape God's judgment against sin. His point in chapter 2 is that Jews, like Gentiles, have rebelled against God and need his grace. What he's saying is, being religious is not enough. In fact, being religious can be deadly. That's the point of our text. It's found in Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 24. Romans 2, 17 through 24. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, that's on page 940. I encourage you to get a copy of the Bible in front of you. Get the words in front of you because we're just going to walk through this portion of the Apostle Paul's argument. I don't want you to miss it. It's brilliant. And it is important for us to understand it. So you follow along in your copy of God's word as I read it aloud from Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. The apostle writes, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law, and if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, then you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? 
You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Being religious is not enough to make you right with God. In fact, it may well be deadly in how you handle it. That's not usually how we think. And we think about religious people, and we should understand Paul here is not putting down Jews as if they're in some kind of special category being worse than other people. Paul himself is a Jewish man. He's not saying that the Jews are particularly sinful or more sinful than Gentiles. What he's saying is that sin is universal. Everybody is a sinner. Every people group is sinful. And therefore, everybody needs God's grace to be saved from sin. Being religious won't save you. In fact, it may help you go very comfortably on the way to hell. We tend to think of religious people being good and, and right, with pe- right with God. Right? I mean, that's the way the world thinks, right? Oh, you're religious. You're one of those people. So you have a, a good relationship with God because you go to church. I, I'm not religious, and so my relationship with God wouldn't be as good as your relationship. Sometimes we, we think that if you just know the right things, you show up at the right times at the right places, you hang out with the right people, you say the right words, you know the words to the songs, you know the words to the Apostles' Creed, that that's enough. That qualifies you as somehow having reason to hope that you're okay with God. Well, Paul wants to disabuse us all of that wrong way of thinking this morning. Being religious isn't enough. Let's look at the passage here, verses 17 through 24. I just want to walk you through it first before we dive into it. The grammatical structure of this passage is difficult. And Paul employs different rhetorical elements in it in order to forcefully make his point. But the main point that he's getting at is very simple and it is very clear. Paul here is not writing as a scholar trying to score academic points with people. He's writing as an evangelist. He's writing as someone who is burdened to persuade his readers that their religious advantages cannot save them because they need righteousness That they can't earn. God requires righteousness that the most religious person in the world cannot supply. And because of that, if you just trust in your religion, your being with the right people at the right time, doing the right things, you may well go straight to hell under the judgment of God, all the while being proud of how religious you are. Let's break the paragraph down into four parts. If you look at verse 17 and 18, you'll see Paul there describes religious privileges that belong to the Jews. In verses 19 and 20, he speaks about the performances, things they're able to do because of those privileges. Verses 21 and 22, he asks them if they're practicing what they preach. And then in verses 23 and 24, he just brings it to a very strong conclusion, pointedly calling them hypocrites, accusing them 
of dishonoring God. Now, Paul does this by setting up a conversation, an argument with one particular man. He doesn't have a particular individual in mind. He's just using that as a prototypical Jew, a prototypical religious person. And so we see the way he begins this by, if you call yourself a Jew, he's putting a guy up there that represents all the people he's talking about, all the religious Jews. And he's doing so in order to show that no matter who you are, how religious you might think you are, your religion's not enough. Well, let's follow this path through this paragraph as I just outlined it, but I want to do it not in the a cold way as I've just mentioned it then. I want to actually do it following Paul's argument and trying to employ some of his own rhetorical elements in the way he writes this paragraph. So we see in verses 17 and 18 him making this statement, almost an accusation. You can have lots of religious privileges. You can have a life that has been incredibly blessed with religious opportunities. These two verses, 17 and 18, contain a series of conditional statements in which the conditions are assumed to be true. So Paul, again, is using a rhetorical device to heighten the point that he's making. And in doing so, he identifies five religious privileges that Jewish people of his day had. First, in verse 17, he said, you call yourself a Jew. Well, that was a real privilege. Not everybody could call themselves a Jew. Only those who were a part of the people that God himself chose to be his people. He chose Abraham and made out of Abraham the head of this Jewish race. And so it was the children of Abraham to whom great blessings were given. Great opportunities were given. And to be called a Jew, to be able to honestly call yourself a Jew, was to say that God had revealed himself to your people. He made covenants with your people. He gave his law to your people. He sent his prophets to your people. It was a high privilege. It was a point of great pride. Pride that Paul himself had known before he became a Christian. He writes about it in Galatians 1 verse 14. He says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. I was a Jew. So Paul says, okay, you call yourself a Jew. That's point one. That's a high privilege. Point two, you rely on the law. You have the law and you rest in it. You take comfort in it. You treasure it. They're confident that God has spoken to them. Even as we heard a portion of Psalm 119 read earlier, that whole psalm is celebrating the law of God that he gave to his old covenant people. In Psalm 19, the commandments of God are called greater than gold, more valuable than gold, than much fine gold, sweeter than honey to the taste. Paul says, okay. You're a Jew. God's given you his law. You rest in that law. You rely upon it. Thirdly, you boast in God. God had made great covenant promises to the Jewish people. Summed up in that recurring phrase in the Old Testament, I will be your God and you will be my people. 
the pledge, the promise that God made to his people. And that enabled the Jews to boast in God. Their God was the creator of the world. It's a high privilege to be able to call the creator of the universe your God. Fourthly, you know God's will. Verse 18. It's precisely because God had chosen the Jews and given them his law that the Jewish people could indeed say, we know God's will. We have God's will. As we heard, Psalm 119 verse 105 says, God's word is a a lamp into my feet, a light into my path. That's a privilege. That's an incredible blessing. It's like having a GPS mapping system whenever you're traveling through unknown territory. Aren't you glad that somebody out of that little GPS says turn left, (laughs) turn right, you know, one mile, do this. You don't know where to go, but you're getting guidance. Well, that's the way it is to have God's law, to have his word. You are able to make sense of the world. You can know what his will actually is. Well, the Jews had that and Paul acknowledges it. And he says, this is one of your great privileges. These things aren't bad. They're good. Paul's making a case that though you've got all of these things, I want to show you something that your religion is not enough. The fifth privilege in verse 18 is you approve what is excellent. So they not only know what's best, they actually approve it. They've got discernment. They can say, this is right, this is wrong, this is good, this is bad. Because they had God's law given to them, and they had been properly instructed in it. Specifically, at the end of verse 18, we see they not only possessed God's law, but they had been catechized in it. That's the word that's used there. This is how they have learned God's will. This is where they've learned to be discerning. It's all part of their religious privilege. The Jews of Paul's day were in a very blessed position Compared to other nations of the world. Little Jewish children growing up in faithful Jewish homes. Would have heard the law of God from their earliest days. They would have heard the lessons from the prophets that had been handed down from generation to generation. They would have grown up going to religious services. Keeping religious Holidays, learning about God's promises to his people. They would have known lots of good, right, true things about God. Paul says, it's not enough. All those blessings, great as they are, are insufficient to make you right with God. Brothers and sisters, that's still true. That's true today. That's true here. In this church. Wonderful privileges. God has given to us in this church. He's given us his word. He's given us. The testimony of faithful men and women. Across many generations. On whose shoulders we stand. We have lots of. Religious benefits. Here in this church. But having. Religious benefits. Is not enough. You can be blessed with all kinds of opportunities and still miss God. If you trust 
in your religious blessings. You trust and depend upon the fact that you're more religious than other people. You will miss God. Because God requires righteousness. A righteousness that you cannot supply by all of your religious knowledge and activities. This is the Apostle Paul's point. It's particularly relevant here for us today, especially for those of you who have grown up in homes and in a church where the Word of God has been taught you. Some of you young people, you've heard thousands of sermons, thousands of Bible studies. You've heard thousands of prayers. And one great danger you face, one temptation you're going to face, is to think, okay, I know. I can answer the questions. I know the stories. I know the songs. And you can begin to feel comfortable in just having religious privileges. The Apostle Paul's making an argument here. Follow it through. Because he's acknowledging, yes, these are wonderful privileges. These are good things. But if you trust in those good things, if you let the reality of religious privileges keep you from recognizing your own sinfulness and need of a Savior, those good things will be deadly to you. Those blessings will be the undoing of your eternal soul. Verses 17 and 18, Paul says you can have religious privileges. Secondly, in verses 19 and 20, he builds on his argument by saying you can perform religious services. You can have religious privileges, and with them you can perform religious services. After listing those five privileges in those first two verses, Paul now lists in 19 and 20 four things that they can do as a result of those privileges. Let's look at them. In verse 19, he says, you can confidently be a guide to the blind. So you take confidence. You you very self-assuredly say, I will guide the blind. As those with religious privilege, the Jewish people in the first century could see and understand the truth. It was the other people that they regarded to be blind. We see, we know, God has spoken to us. It's you other people who have great needs. It's interesting because Jesus critiques this very attitude in Matthew chapter 23. In Matthew 23, he just upbraids the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and twice he calls them blind guides. I mean, how would you like to have a blind guide, right? Somebody that can't see any better than Anything, and they're going to guide you through some unknown territory. A blind guide. Paul here doesn't say it in that language, but he's going to come around toward the end of our passage and make the exact same point. Oh, you, you think that you are guides to those who are blind, but in reality, you are just as blind yourself. Secondly, not only are they confidently guiding the blind, they can be a light to those living in darkness. Again, this is really the same point as the first one. And Paul here is borrowing language from Isaiah chapter 42 and chapter 49, where God specifically describes a part of Israel's call as his people to be a light for the nations. To take what they have received and to make it known to others. Well, he goes on making the same point by listing a third thing that they can do. In verse 20, they can be instructors of the foolish. 
those that not only inform people of what's true, but actually correct their error and train them in what is true. Fourthly, in verse 20, he says that they could be teachers of children, able to help those who are helpless to understand and follow the ways of God. They can do all these things, he says in verse 20, because they have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. They are blessed. They are privileged. They have a religious status as Jewish people. What Paul is doing is showing how a religious person can think about himself in relation to those who are not religious. I mean, we do this, right? We know the Bible, we know how to pray. We know the Apostles' Creed. We know the words to the songs that we sing. We know the Lord's Prayer. And because we know this, we really have advantages over others, and we can teach others. And isn't it sad that other churches don't have sound doctrine like we do? And isn't it unfortunate that they're not as familiar with the ancient creeds as we are? If we're not careful, brothers and sisters, we can take the privileges that God has blessed us with and turn them into a platform of pride to blind us to our own sin and need and dependence upon Christ. And Paul would spare us that. He would spare his own Jewish kinsmen that. And so as he's writing this letter and he's arguing for the universality of sin that every person is a sinner before God. Every person needs God's grace. He wants to make sure that his Jewish kinsmen aren't just checking out and saying, that's great news for Gentiles. Go get them, Paul. Brothers and sisters, we need to avoid that attitude as well. This word is for us. To remind us, to teach us that we are dependent upon God's grace. We can't rest upon our religious privileges. All of those privileges are good things from God. They're blessings. Paul's point is, they're not enough. It's not enough. It's good to know, to understand, to have access, to have opportunity to relate to God. But you must know Him. You must come to Him and be reconciled to Him in such a profound way that that knowledge and reconciliation changes the way that you live. It becomes the most significant aspect of your being. Your whole identity is bound up in it. That you're a child of this God. You've been purchased by Him through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the point Paul's driving at in this passage. So let's continue to follow his argument. He says, you can have religious privileges... You can perform religious services. But now we come, verses 21 and 22, to some penetrating questions. Let me summarize like this. Do you practice what you preach? You're privileged. You could do religious things. But do you practice what you preach? He gives four rhetorical questions that expose the hypocrisy of having a religious profession without godly possession of spiritual life. Verse 21. First question. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? This is a summary of everything he's just written 
in what he's about to do in the other specific questions. He says, you, you have God's law, but do you having God's law use that to teach yourself? Or is your possession of God's law only for other people because you think that you're okay? Do you teach differently than you live? Well, that's the essence of hypocrisy, isn't it? To say one thing and to live another way. Some teachers are such bad practitioners of what they teach that the best thing you can do is say, listen to them, but don't follow them. Sometimes teachers would be better teachers if they would just say, do what I say, not what I do. Jesus made that point to his own disciples with regard to the Pharisees in Matthew Chapter 23, he says, the scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you. When they teach you the law, listen to them. But, he says, don't do the works they do, for they preach, but do not practice. That's what Paul here is exposing with his fellow Jews, his religious kinsmen. That's always the danger of religious privileges. You can become content with simply knowing what is right and how to live. And so you don't give yourself sincerely to the truth in such a way that you order your life by it. In other words, you're content to teach others, but you're simply not willing to submit and learn yourself. Well, next, after that general kind of indicting rhetorical question, Paul gives three specific examples of such hypocrisy Again, using rhetorical questions. In verse 21, while you preach against stealing, do you steal? What's he talking about here? The eighth commandment. You shall not steal. He says, you know the commandment. Are you doing that? Do you tell other people that it's wrong to steal because God has revealed that, and yet you go about cheating on your taxes? Yet you go about robbing your employer of the time that he's paying you for? Do you preach against stealing while you steal? And then the next question in verse 22. You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? We believe the seventh commandment. God tells us you shall not commit adultery, but are you living in adultery? Are you engaging in sexual immorality all the while preaching God's holiness against it? The third question in verse 22 third of these three specifics. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Now, it's difficult to know precisely what Paul means by this. It could be that he's writing very literally here because robbing temples was a thing in the first century. Going into these pagan places of worship and taking gifts that had been left by worshipers, stealing things from the temple. Paul himself was accused of robbing temples in Ephesus. You can read about it in Acts chapter 19, when the magistrate there said they are not guilty of robbing temples. So he could have been talking literally. But he could have been talking figuratively as well, because there's a a historian by the name of Josephus that records a case of Jewish people not paying the temple tax and being accused of robbing the temple. So it may be that he has that figurative idea 
in mind. Or maybe he's talking about Jewish businessmen that see an avenue whereby they can traffic in stolen goods from those pagan temples. And so they've made money off of that. We don't know exactly what that third example means. But that doesn't dilute the point at all. Uh, the, The main point that Paul is getting at is that it's not enough to know the law and to teach the law if you're not obeying the law. It's not enough to say this is what God requires and to advocate for that and then to live as if you don't care about that. It's not enough to preach to others when you're not willing to live according to that same standard yourself. These examples of stealing, adultery, robbing temples are not exhaustive. They are illustrative. Paul is using them to make a point that it's not enough to know the law. It's not enough to be religious. God requires the kind of righteousness that is spotless. That comes from complete obedience to all of his commandments. And nobody. Nobody measures up to that standard. Nobody can deliver for himself or herself what God requires. No Gentile can do it. No Jew can do it. No irreligious person can do it. No religious person can do it. As he's going to begin to summarize in in Romans chapter 3 verse 10. None is righteous. No, not one. This is a part of that overarching argument that he's making. Everyone is before God a sinner. And everyone needs what only God and his grace can supply to be saved from our sin. Religion won't do it. Privileges won't do it. We need a savior. That's why Jesus came. That's why God sent him. That's why he volunteered to enter into this world to live the kind of life God requires of us. Perfect righteousness. Never sinning. He he never left a duty undone. He never violated anything that God said we're prohibited to do. And, And he never entertained sinful thoughts. Because God requires righteousness, not just in what we do externally, but internally. He never said a sinful word. He never harbored a sinful desire. And by living that kind of life, he earned a spotless righteousness. The righteousness that God requires of you. Me. And having earned that righteousness, he submitted himself to death on the cross in order to satisfy the law's demands that the soul that sins must surely die. Not only does God require us to be completely righteous, he also requires us to pay for our unrighteousness. And the only payment for unrighteousness, for sin, is eternal death. And Jesus gave up his life in order to pay that debt. He lived a righteous life in order to secure what God requires. And by his life and by his death, he has accomplished salvation. And he's done it for anyone and everyone who will trust in him. So I know that there's some of you here this morning, you're religious. You've got great religious privileges. You could count them. And they're 
real. And they're good. But hear this. Your religion, your religious privileges are not enough. They can't make you right with God. In fact, they may well be deadly to your soul. What you need is Christ. You need the righteousness that Jesus earned. You need the payment that he made on the cross. And in behalf of Jesus today, on the authority of God's word, I plead with you to turn from your sin and trust Jesus Christ as Lord right now. Trust him. He will accept you. He will receive you to himself and reconcile you to God. And your sins will be completely forgiven. They'll be covered by Jesus. That's your only hope. But it is a great hope. It is a real hope. It is a hope that God sets before you today. And if you have been trusting in your goodness, in your efforts, in your intentions, in your religion, renounce it all today and come to Jesus Christ. Be saved. He will save you. Well, this brings us to the conclusion of Paul's argument in this paragraph. He says in verses 17 and 18, you can have religious privileges. Verses 19 and 20, you can perform religious services. Verses 21 and 22, but do you practice what you preach? And then he comes in these last two verses. And he says, by being religious lawbreakers, you dishonor God. You dishonor God. Claiming to know God without living for God dishonors God. Verse 23, you who boast in the law dishonor God By breaking the law. Having God's law is a great blessing. But having God's law while living lawlessly is a curse. It dishonors God. Brothers and sisters, again, it's a wonderful privilege that we have in this congregation to have God's word given to us. To have a commitment to teach the word without any varnish. To not rub off. Those hard corners of God's truth. Because we have a pre-commitment that it is God's word. And it's right. And it's good. And it's true. And we need it. What a blessing. What a blessing to have those ancient creeds and confessions. Like our church's 1689 Second London Baptist Confession. We adopt it. It's over 300 years old. Why do we adopt it? Because we stand in the stream Of men and women who've understood exactly what we believe today concerning God's word. What a blessing to have these gifts and privileges given to us in this church. But hear me. Hear me. It's not enough. It's not enough. To have the truth. And not live by the truth. To have the truth and not be animated by the truth. To know about Christ and not have Christ is deadly. It's deadly. So if you've trusted in the fact that you're around the right kind of people in the right time. Saying the right things. Knowing the right answers to the question. Recognize God's been good to you. But recognize the danger that you're in and counting on something other than Christ as you're standing before God. And trust him today. Religion, with all of its blessings, is useless if you're not being transformed by the truth 
of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. In fact, such religion is worse than useless. It's deadly. This is why Jesus said in, John, in Luke 6.46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? He's not saying, look, if you do what I tell you, then I'm going to save you. He's saying, no, if I'm really your Lord, if you're trusting me as Lord, then you're going to live under my Lordship. It is a great self-deception to think you can have Jesus as Lord and then just live consistently, persistently in rebellion to what he says. Don't be deceived. Jesus said living that way is spiritually disastrous. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he concludes his teaching with an illustration. I want to read it to you. It's in Matthew 7, 24 through 27. He said, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Believing Christ, not just giving lip service to his lordship, but taking him at his word because you've staked your eternal destiny upon him. You'll be like a house built on a rock. Let the storms come. Let the wind blow. You're not going to be moved. But then he contrasts it. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell. And great was the fall of it. It's deadly. It's disastrous. Claiming to know God while not living for God dishonors him in your life. It can result in your eternal damnation. That's horrible. That's bad enough. But there's more. The very last verse, Paul says, claiming to know God without living for God also causes God's name to be blasphemed by other people. He quotes Isaiah 52, verse 5 and verse 24. For it's written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Religious hypocrisy is not just disastrous for the hypocrite. Religious hypocrisy is disastrous for the world. It's disastrous for your neighbors. It's disastrous for your children. It's disastrous for anybody who's looking for an opportunity to say, oh yeah, that church just filled with a bunch of hypocrites. Yeah, look, they, they talk a big game. They talk about love. They talk about Sacrifice. But their lives give the lie to what they profess. As people who know God, we're called to make him known. Yet if we openly, consistently, persistently live in disobedience to his commands, we're acting while acting as if we're okay with God because we're religious, then we're causing others to blaspheme God. Here's the reality. 
people will judge our God by how we live. You say you know the Lord, you're one of His people, then they will take cues from your life to make judgments about God. I have a dear friend who, for many years, was a Muslim, was a missionary to Muslim countries. And when he spent four years in Afghanistan, he came home, and I I talked to him after that four-year stint, and he described a conversation he had one day with an Afghani mullah, an imam, a holy man. And he said, when the imam discovered that he was a pastor, a Christian pastor, he says, tell me. He said, is it true that you get to have as many women as you want? Where'd that idea come from? Came from Christian America. Came from the scandals of ministers of the gospel engaging in multiple sexual illicit relationships. The name of God was blasphemed because of the people of God living godlessly. William Carey was the father of the modern missionary movement. In 1792, he wrote a book after his studies of the world and his argument that we need to take the gospel to the world. And in that book, he says that one of the greatest hindrances to the gospel work among Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus was the presence of so many professing Christians from Europe in those nations where those Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists live. He writes this, among such Christians, ignorance and immorality abounds, causing unconverted people to disdain the gospel that those Christians proclaimed. Listen to what John Stott said. No church can spread the gospel with any degree of integrity, let alone credibility, unless it has been visibly changed by the gospel it preaches. We need to look like what we're talking about. It's not enough to receive the gospel and pass it on. We must embody it in our common life of faith, love, joy, peace, righteousness, and hope. Brothers and sisters, how we live has eternal consequences on people's lives who are watching us and know that we name the name of Christ. Now, that should not fill us with fear. It should not terrorize us. What it should do is remind us of how we came to know Christ to begin with. You know Christ only by turning from sin and trusting Him as Lord. How do you continue in Christ? By turning from sin, trusting in Him as Lord. Just as you came to Christ, so you continue in Christ in repentance and faith and you don't let yourself ever begin to think that because of your religious privileges, because of your religious advantages, that surely you're okay with God and you're in a position now to look down your nose at other people that aren't like you. No. We proclaim the truth of God. We proclaim His law. We proclaim His gospel as people who don't think that we've kept His law to the degree that He accepts us, but as people who've been saved by the grace in the gospel and now want to magnify the law and want to live lawful lives. When we sin, we repent.
When we fall, we get up, we start over. When we grow weak with doubts and unbelief, we remember and take God at His Word and believe. And as we teach and preach and live and talk about this God, we do so not from some type of third-person perspective as if we're outside of the need of His grace. We talk about it as insiders. We live as insiders. Trusting Christ, pursuing holiness, believing that it's only because of the righteousness that God has given us in His Son that we live. So are you religious? You may be, and if so, there's lots of blessings that go with true religion's privileges. But know this, it's not enough. Don't trust in your religion. Don't trust in your religious privileges and benefits. Recognize that you, along with me, along with everybody you know, fall short of the glory of God. We all sin. We all need a Savior. And trust that Savior. Keep following Him. Keep depending upon Him because everyone needs a Savior. Jesus is the only Savior the world has. That's why God sent Him into the world. To save us from sin. So whether you're religious or not, whether you've had great spiritual privileges or not, let this truth live with you the rest of this day, the rest of this week, the rest of your life. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And He will save you as you turn from your sin and entrust yourself, heart and soul, to Him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the way that you speak to us so plainly, the warnings you give us and the dangers that we face, temptations that we face to trust our privileges, advantages. Please keep us in this church from that error. Help us to remember Christ, to live by faith in Christ, to teach and preach Christ as people whose lives are completely dependent upon the grace that you've given us in him. I pray for religious people today, young people, children, adults that are here today, and they've been trusted in their religion. Rescue them, O oh God. Save them by your grace today. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.